What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner, and this week we got the shock, shock nerd Mark Mentzer on the show. Mark, what's going on? I was just hanging out, Brian, trying to get some work done right here before Sweet 16. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you probably have people throwing shocks at you left, right, and center, right? Yeah, we're we're definitely up to our eyeballs and shock absorbers. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good thing, right? It's like we were talking about it. it's a it's a job security, but sometimes you kind of question the job security, right? Well, yeah, it's I mean anymore, it's um, there's no more off season in drag racing, you know, so it's just like um, insanity uh, twelve months out of the year. Um, but you you know you have the peaks and the valleys, and this is definitely. Um, you know, people saw the race go off, it lights out, and then they get excited, and uh, next thing you know, the, the UPS truck's knocking down the door, and there's a whole bunch of work to do. Which is interesting, because I was trying to catch up with you at the event for the live broadcast, and it was like, you were like a Delta Force operator, man. You were a ghost. It was like, he's over here, he's over there, couldn't find you at all, but every time I went back over to, uh, to the truck, it was like, your guys had just literally piles of shocks that they were doing various things too yeah the the conditions were a little challenging um and if that race in particular that february race is sort of the um it's the beginning of the season for a lot of guys and they show up with newly updated and upgraded equipment they found new power they've taken out weight they've changed stuff there's been rule changes um and then you know we had a nice warm uh, weather event there so that kind of culminated into you know stressing a lot of folks out and then having to make a lot of changes on the fly we just you know we that but that's again though that's the reason that we go there that we set up and the reason that we we uh we choose to have the service truck there so that we can cater to our customers at that level now, now that's the reason i was kind of leading you to to that body of water to take a drink is uh the service truck, it fascinates me to no end to see the service, different service trucks at events and what companies do, you know, MacFab making beadlocks and whatnot. Let's talk about, let's pull the curtain back a little bit for our listeners and talk about what that service truck is capable of. Because the only thing I kind of might know what I was looking at there was it looked like it was a shock dyno out in front. Outside of that, I don't know what other special equipment you guys have or what your capabilities are there. So... When, when when you go to the suite, you know one of these events with your with your service truck, what what can you do for racers? We literally have the capability there to to repair, revalve, or build from scratch anything that you can buy out of our entire product lineup. Um, and so, you know what what will happen a lot of times? You'll have a racer they might do a big wheelie and they mess up a, a T-bar on a front shock on an A-arm front end, or they might break the end cap off of one or something like that. So they rush the thing over there and, you know, we're fixing it up and get them ready so they can go out and make another test run or the next round of qualifying or whatever. Um, but we, we try to keep parts on hand so we can literally build anything that you can buy out of our whole inventory. No, that, so, that makes sense. I mean, you know, tooling wise, every, Every piece of equipment that, that you need to build a shock absorber or a strut, we have that stuff with us. Um, and, of course, we do have the shock dyno there because we, you know, dyno tune and match every pair that we build. So, I mean, like um, last year when DJ McCain did the big sky flyer um, with the LDR car and that thing came down and broke the front strut, like we fixed all that stuff at the racetrack and got those guys back going. A lot of other people chipped in, obviously, but the front strut was totally smoked, so we had to build a new one from scratch, and and we were able to do that, and they got the car, you know, turned around and ended up winning the event. Now, the shock dyno, I kind of want to talk about that, you know, just in general so our listeners can get an idea what those are about because I, I watch a ton of dirt track racing on flow racing, and it's yeah. always cool when they do – the 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 hauler tours with these dirt track teams because they have all kind like a dirt track hauler compared to a drag racing hauler are two totally different animals and a lot of those teams have their own shock dynos inside those trailers because that's a must-have kind of thing for a dirt track racer because they have to play with that stuff all the time and they have to be very knowledgeable about shock absorbers whereas drag racers 
you know, we're like cavemen with rocks and clubs and we just go ugga bugga, you know, and we just know a couple clicks and that's about it. You know, what do you do with a shock dyno in drag racing that might be different than a dirt track racer? Um, actually, we don't do anything different than you do with dirt track racing. It's just that in drag racing, we're tuning based on data to improve the car. And we're working with a very black and white finite set of variables because the driver input, as far as a good run goes, is to hold his foot to the floor, not let off and not run into anything. So there's no driver feel. When you're tuning shocks for circle track cars or road racing cars, there's very much um, this gray area called driver feel. And that's why you end up with so many shock dynos in circle track trailers. Because every guy has something just slightly different that he likes to feel in the car. He wants a thing a little freer on corner entry or a little snugger through the middle. Or he likes to have a certain, you know, feeling in the race car that's his comfort zone with drag racing you just don't have that um so with drag racing we look at the data and we maximize for a given moment the 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 performance of that car based on those conditions um and it's very very black and white and so in circle track racing you know you're you got guys that just like to feel different things um as far as feedback from the race car and the shock absorber has a lot to do with that Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense. I was I was just curious because like I I see those shock dynos there and like all these trailers and I'm like, it's interesting that you know drag racers don't have that, but it's also at the same time you know those guys go up you know to the to the track side with literally like side by side golf cart kind of deals with like crash carts and you know tools and everything to fix a car. Thank God we don't have to deal with that in drag racing. Well, there and there's a lot of that in circle track racing. Also, you may, you may have a shock inventory for a single race team that's 50 or 55, 60 shock absorbers. Um, You know, each corner of the car has a different shock absorber. Um, And then you have different builds, different valve codes for different track conditions. And it becomes necessary at some point when you have that kind of inventory to simply be able to validate your own shock absorbers, you know, after you've been on a rough racetrack or something like that, you know, just to go through and make sure that everything is up to snuff. Just from from a maintenance standpoint, it becomes necessary when you have that kind of inventory on hand. I just kind of thought of this, too, because you mentioned that the DJ McCain, you know, flight and repair and whatnot. And, you know, this ain't your first rodeo. You've been around the block a few times. Can you think of a time when someone has brought something to the service truck where you're just like, you're just like, how? How did this happen? (laughs) You know, kind of that situation. Because racers are awesome at breaking stuff and, you know. I'm sure there's a couple of kind of caught you by surprise with the level of destruction that they've uh, presented you with. Oh yeah. We, I remember when uh, Dwayne Mills took flight with the golden gorilla. Um, that was one of the first really big wheelies, you know, um, that we'd experienced with a radial versus the world car like that. And that thing came down and it ballooned the, the shock bodies in a monotube shock. So it ballooned them, blew the seal heads out of them. And so we got back and we started trying to figure out what the shock velocity was. And it was just astronomical. The thing saw over 200 inches a second or something when it came down out of the air and it just ruptured them. I mean, it was complete devastation. Um, <laughs> that, that's, I, I, I can't, I'm trying to picture a shock body getting ballooned. Is that like something you put in the hall of fame or you just return to him? Like I, yard art? I think they're, I think they're laying under a workbench somewhere at the shop. It was like, hold on to this because someday, you know, I remember um, one, you know, Michael Beely uh, raced NHRA Pro Mod um, and Michael had a tire that came apart on the end of the racetrack. I think it was, might've been Dallas. I can't remember what racetrack it was, but that thing, the tire came apart way on the big end of the racetrack at like 245 miles an hour in this turbo Pro Mod. And when it came through, it like, it grabbed the wheelie bar and ripped it through the back of the car. And it started churning through this thing, like a, like a, uh, like a weed whacker or something. It just tore the whole back of the car, all the smithereens. And it, 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 it shook those shocks all to pieces. I mean, it just, it tore everything up. The thing is shook so bad. It cracked the intake runners in the manifold. Holy cow. 
imagine what that's were... imagine what that sounded like inside that car yeah the end of the world it would have had to have been yeah because i would i would think a turbo as far as like a combination to race would be fairly quiet on the inside of the car anyway going down the racetrack oh yeah you know i mean it's so then this all this hell breaks loose behind you you know yeah yeah, it sounds like something's trying to. Well, something was literally chewing through the back of the car, and you know the, uh, the, you know, looking at all the data and the sensors. Imagine what all that looked like when you're kind of flipping through it as the tuner, and you just see everything just going completely haywire for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, the G meter went berserk. I mean, it, it you know it was it was pretty spectacular, but that stuff all came back in a basket. I mean, it was just you know. <laughs> was destroyed <laughs> yeah that's that's not good when you have to take parts to various manufacturers and they're being shipped in boxes that are like half the size they should be and you know you got to put on there some assembly required it's not <laughs> yeah. what anybody wants to deal with i'm sending your shocks back in little baggies <laughs> yeah okay can you fix this appreciate it okay thanks yeah, yeah. That, that that never ceases to amaze me the durability testing that racers do to stuff and you know someone that you know helps tune on a lot of cars in, in different aspects is that something you have to take into account and deal with as a racers like their threshold for sketchy and dangerous things absolutely yes it has to pass the test and i won't name any names but there's a couple of racers out there and their crew members whose names could be attached to that particular test. Um, but, but the stuff has to pass that test. If, and, and that's the threshold for if this guy cannot destroy this or hasn't killed anybody with it, it is now safe to put it out there in the public's hands. That makes sense. I, I could probably imagine a few of the people and that totally makes sense based on some of the things I've seen. <laughs> and, it comes down to you get some racers that are more than willing to take what I would it might if it was me in the car I'd be like you know what let's not take that risk other than we're like is it kind of safe sweet roll it we'll be fine I just there, there's a fine line and I'm sure that that plays a fact in when someone when you're trying to set something up that you have to know how far up to that line they're willing to walk either driving the car or with the condition of something. Well, it's a it is a a perilous sort of a, a fine line to try to navigate because, as with anything, you know, you're trying to maximize performance, which means you want to maximize the lightness of something. You need it to be lightweight. Um, it needs to be strong to a point, but you also have to figure out from an engineering standpoint where the safest weak link can occur because everything has to have a fusible link in it somewhere, so to speak. Um, so, you know, if you make, if you make one part too strong and then it breaks something else that's more critical, have you really done yourself a favor or were you just better off accepting the fact that there's certain life cycles necessary, um, that you, that you, in which you have to replace or maintain things, um, and do service work, you know? So it's a, it's kind of a, it's a tricky needle to try to thread no oh, it's, it's like a top it's like a top fuel engine block you know they they, yep. they have those windows in there we need this to fail right here and you you have yep. to have that on a lot of parts on any of these racing vehicles yep you, you want it yep. to break in a spot that's going to cause the least amount of damage and cost the least amount of money that's exactly right yep and 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 be the least least likely to set about like a series of cascading events that leads to a total catastrophe because you know any any parts failure on this car can end up you know piled up in the wall somewhere and that's the last thing you want to have happen well yeah i mean look at that crash that tom bailey's son has i was watching on their youtube channel they're like doing the autopsy on that whole deal and you know the the first problem he talked aiden talked about was he admitted he goes i was too far out of the groove which is one problem in amongst itself. But then when you mix in the fact that that engine, you know, the cooling system pressurized and burped a bunch of water out, that's like taking a bad problem and just you're throwing gas on that fire. Exactly. Yeah. Everything, 
everything is manageable up to a point and and then something pushes it over the threshold and at that point you know tom's his ability to drive the car um and and probably make it through that getting out of the groove which he's done numerous times before with no problem that that one time you throw in those extenuating circumstances and now the thing's piled up you know let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about when things go 110 percent right you know since since we last talked there's been two, two racers that have gone into the 340s on a radial tire which a year ago plus if we would you would have said that i'd have been like there's there's no way so i've kind of stopped saying that there's no way actually i'll take that back i think we'll, we'll do a hard stop it in, in the 330s i don't god i don't think we'll ever see a 330 pass on a radial tire but you know don't don't give some of these guys too big of a carrot to look at you know <laughs> I, like i wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out i mean i you know it's all going to be based on on how that class really you know what happens with that class moving forward um what or you know and i hate to even call it a class really it's more like a spectacle it's an event you know yeah. radio versus the world is not probably never should have been turned into a class should have never been run at any other venues or anywhere besides donald's thing a couple of times a year um because it's it's totally unsustainable and it's it's just ridiculous um but you know if you give us that tire good track prep um and a rule set that lets those guys peel the weight out of them and go unlimited with them they probably can run a 330 that just i i like Dude, I can't wrap my mind around that. Honestly, I cannot wrap my mind around. I mean, we're talking what a damn near a, a, a sub eight point eight sixty foot. That's what it would have well, to take. Yeah, I mean, well, and and you know, at the current at the current rule set, you have numerous cars that are that are hovering right there at nine double o eight ninety eight eighty five eight eighty seven sixty foot. So, I mean, they're they're on the cusp of of being the fastest i mean in and in today's environment with the current series that are running everywhere they are the fastest door cars the, the quickest door cars on the planet but if you take the weight out of them and say you make them equivalent to the weights of pro extreme i think that they go middle to bottom 40s yeah i that like watching both times seeing cars go 349 you know, especially the recent one with Jason Lee's car. I, I was walking back towards the, uh, the the TV truck when he was getting ready to make that hit. And I was talking with our freelance photographer, Jesse Williams. I'm like, dude, get ready to shoot the boards. I was like, Fivehead said he was putting everything he had into it. And I was like, I just, I got a feeling, man, the track's there. And like, he's been banging on that keyboard. I was like, watch what happens. It's certain, sure enough, as soon as I saw that car make it past 60 feet, I'm like, he's, th this is it. I really, really thought based on that rip, I'm like, he's going to go quicker than 49 with a six. I really thought it was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, it would have been amazing to, you know, to go, go out and reset the record again. Um, and, and you never know what might happen, you know, at sweet 16, if you get the right weather, you get a cool front or you have anything like that happen. Um, it's subject to happen. That's, that's, I think that's the, that's been the downfall of radial versus the world. And it's also been the thing that makes it so exciting is that it, you know, it just about any time they take to the racetrack, you know, you, these guys can blow the scoreboards down. You never know. You give them the right air and a good racetrack and they can do phenomenal things. Um, it's also an impossible situation from a promoter standpoint to try to keep up a class or, or an event or a spectacle, if you will, um, that requires you to go out and set a record every time they take to the racetrack. Yeah. It's, you know, you're backing, you're painting yourself into a pretty tight corner. So, yeah. You, you've been around for a while. So I'm going to run a statement past you that kind of goes off of that. And we can talk about this, how you will. The only way you can maintain parody in any form of heads up drag racing is to piss a certain amount of racers off. Absolutely. hundred percent. That. You know, we, we've seen that with Ultra, you know, literally, we'll just say any heads-up class in the history of man from 
you know, nitro racing down to any of, you know, the old school, you know, pro media and MRA and MCA classes that no matter what you do to try to keep things somewhat close, people are either going to be mad because you are slowing them down or you're not doing enough to speed them up. Right. Absolutely. And it is, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not a rules maker. I'm not involved in any of that. I'm not on any committee. I don't have any input in that stuff. I stay as far away from it as I can, but it's absolutely impossible in a situation that is governed by cubic dollars to maintain true parity. And that is, that's the end all be all. That's the line period. Yeah. There, there is always going to be somebody that has more money. Notice I didn't say knowledge because money can buy knowledge. That is, that is what it all rolls around is money. And the only way that you can like maybe even think about putting a cap on that is you have to have such draconian lockdown rules that that's the only way you can keep that from that circle from creeping out too much. The only way. That's right. Yeah. You get to a situation where you become, you know, you become a uh, FIA or, or something, and you say this is your engine budget for the year, and you have to produce financial uh, statements and prove that you've not spent any. I mean, that's just ridiculous. No drag racer is going to let you look at their books. No, God, you know? no. They're, they're drag racer tell you where to where to put that rule. Yeah, God, they'd be afraid their wives are going to look at that. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I mean, it, dude, it's just a uh, you know. But it, and again, that you know that has become sort of the. And that's part of what made made the radial racing thing uh, explode the way that it did. Um, and part of its downfall, again, is that you can buy these things. You know, prior to, um, you know, the 2009, 2010, um, there were not a, a widely available parts and pieces to go out there and create a radial car that could go run really fast and be competitive. And then you had this explosion of manufacturers and companies and knowledgeable people whose services and wares were all of a sudden for sale. And you could go out and write a check and have a bad, fast radial versus world car or bad, fast X275 car. You know, you didn't have to build it in your garage and spend five years trying to figure out how to tune it. Yeah. And it's interesting because on the flip side of that, I'll use someone like Ron Rhodes. I love Ron. Ron is one, he's a racer's racer. That dude has got more skinned up knuckle time under the hood of that Camaro, figuring stuff out. Find, like, he don't complain. He finds ways to go fast. Right. I bet you John Sears sweats at night thinking about if Ron Rhodes ever had, like, a monster budget. Could you imagine what that man would do? Yeah, and you know, and a lot of that is a testament to Ron sticking to his combination. He's not a guy you don't see him strapping on a turbo or a pro charger or this or that or changing up. I mean, he's you know he's not four linking his car. He's sticking with his leaf springs. He sticks with what he knows and he continues to refine it. So he hones it down to a finer and finer point year in and year out. Yeah. And it's it's hard to beat that guy. Yeah. Well, he may not be the fastest guy at the racetrack. He's going to be damn near it. But what he is going to do is go down the racetrack, and he's going to make you earn it. Yeah. And it's interesting. Another person, you know, the nitrous racers like Mo Hall was our guest on the show last week. And I, I won't fully discuss what Mo and I talked about in the staging lanes just because I don't know if he wants that full knowledge kind of out there. But I, I, we were talking about, like, what they do to stay fast you know, and the, the length that they go to, people do not understand that it's not just, I mean, it's money, but it's that knowledge and the things that they do, just the way he was explaining to me how they just knit and grit everything down on that engine, that blew me away. I never realized they went to that level of like looking at items. Of course. Um, and that, and that is, that's, sort of i mean that gets to something that we deal with every day in the shop you know we get phone call after phone call um can you help us with our program and of course we're we're ready and able to help in as far as we can but 
I think that it's probably lost on a lot of people just just the extent that the top teams are willing to go to find the tiniest little increments. I mean, the tiniest little fractions of time and ET, the links that they go to. I remember, it's been years ago, but I remember going to Evans, Georgia. I stopped in at Stevie's shop. My wife and I were on the way to somewhere, and we stopped by to visit and have a chat. And Stevie is in the shop with four different kinds of zip ties. And he's weighing the zip ties for the Pro Nitrous car to see which ones are the heaviest. That does I mean, not surprise me at like all. Ridiculous, you know. And and he's like, I want to show you what I did. I cut this out and I got rid of that and I peeled this this uh, grip tapey stuff off the floor here, except for where my heel goes, because that stuff is, you know, two ounces and this is four ounces and it all adds up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. You, if it doesn't make it stop better or go faster it's probably going to get pulled out of a race car yep and when you're racing at that level it's you know like your your uh coyote stock guys and the the chevy uh the chevy crate motor class guys the chc guys the levels that they go through to optimize those cars like it's baby pro stock it's it's insane yep and what cracks me up is I like, you know, I, I got mostly out less stuff, but I love the, that that coyote class because those things just absolutely sing to the moon when they dump the clutch and let those things rip. And you will walk through those pits and it seems like all of those guys, it does not matter what transmission clutch combo they have. At some point during the race weekend, it's coming out of the car, whether oh, they yeah. like whether it's broken <laughs> or just something, it's coming out of the car. That to me is fascinating. They, they like to work. Oh yeah, like I, I love me some stick shift racing, but I was like, you know what? Like, th- there's a fine line between enjoying working on a car and you need to seek counseling for your addiction. Well, I, I started in circle track racing, and we had um, a fleet of dirt late models that we campaigned all over the southeast and Midwest. And I told somebody, you know, I spent 10 years of my life, it seems like, every Monday morning with a pressure washer washing off some pile of junk that had to be rebuilt to some extent or another throughout the week. And I decided that that was not the life for me. Yeah, that, that, that that's something you either absolutely eat it up with a spoon or it's like, you know what, I'm I need to find something else things would come back torn all to pieces and you'd have to fix them and you know the the schedule for the late models was absolutely relentless you know you might race four nights in one week yeah so it's just it's exhausting it i love watching dirt late any well any dirt track team but specifically dirt late model teams like how they work because they there is no problem they can't solve with a hammer well, I mean, you, you learn to improvise on the fly. Um, you learn to fix things. You learn to, like, ratchet strap a, a rubber scotch block on the top of the axle because you broke the the shock mount off the back of the rear end or something, and, you know, that gets you through the feature or whatever. I mean, the stuff that I've seen happen, the stuff that we've done over the years has been incredible. Yeah, like anybody out there that if you think you've seen drag racers do sketchy stuff, go to a shirt. Just go to a dirt track race. I guarantee you the bar will be raised to such a level that you'll think that what we do is rocket science. I've I've made more chassis tuning decisions in three minutes between hot laps and uh, qualifying than some of my drag racers will make in four rounds of racing. Yeah. Yeah, that the whole weekend. That ain't no lie. Yeah, you know you're. It's like a game of inches compared to a game of miles, right? Yeah, it's well. Again, you know, part of it comes back to what I was talking about earlier. You know, when you have all the data to look through and you have a lot of time on your hands, which you usually do at a drag race, um, it gives you the opportunity, which can be bad and can be good, um, to look at all that data and nitpick it. You know, 
and it, it turns out that in a lot of situations, unless something just didn't work like it was supposed to, or something went wrong that you discover in the data, that for me, usually my first instinct when I'm walking back to the truck is probably the right thing to do anyway. And the longer that we have to look at it and think about it, the the more likely we are to make the wrong decision. Yeah. Oh, you, you yeah. You really start to overthink things. Yep. You know, and you you look at look, you know, when you said things can go wrong outside of your control, yada yada yada. You know, look at what happened to Alex Laughlin at Gainesville this weekend. That car was on one heck of a pass until that clutch decided that it did not want to play right anymore and started, you know, shearing things off and engaging a just one clutch finger a little too soon and a top fueler and just those couple extra ounces and that's the difference between laying down a killer run and, you know smoking the tires yeah and and drag racing is is very finite in that aspect too it's black and white you know when you go up for eliminations only one car gets to come back you don't have 49 more laps nope. you know if you blow the start in a dirt late model race and you get shoved up high and get out of the groove and you know nudge back in the pack you got some time you can make it up if you got a good working car Odd. When you're drag racing, if you're late or if you make the wrong on the tune-up, you just go home. Yeah. Try that, again next week. That That's honestly like one of my little sick pleasures I like about dirt track racing is I like seeing the guys that are really fast. Something happened towards the beginning of a race and watching them get pushed back to the field. And then they just dissect the field. To me, that is just – that's some driving. Yeah, when you watch, uh, you know, a guy like Davenport – Oh. Um, or Bloomquist or one of those guys, and they drive from the tail and they come to the front. I mean, that's you know, it's exciting. It's it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing to participate in. It's one of the most exciting things as a crew chief or a car owner that you can be involved in is to have one come from behind. Oh, like TMS, TJ Mesrol, like watching that dude wheel an open wheel car is just <laughs> that dude. I mean, he drives every car like it literally doesn't belong to him. And he's like, yeah, we probably got the car parts to fix it. Like he is like if full send had to be defined in the open wheel dictionary, I think it would be him. Well, it's gotten more like that um, in in the last, you know, dozen years or so. I remember 25 years ago, um, you know, you start a 50 or 100 lap race and everybody rolled off in there they were worried about like settling in the line and getting heat in the tires and like, you know, just letting everything settle out. Let's not get piled up on the start. And, uh, and then the old hats with their experience would come working their way up through the field and the young kid at the front would burn his tires off and, you know, pretty predictable. Um, now these dudes are hammered down like right now and it's nonstop until the checkered flag falls. Elbows up. <laughs> that is that's my favorite dirt track phrase. Elbows up. It's serious, man. And you know, kind of, you know, you, you mentioned burning tires off, and we've talked about radials and whatnot. Let, let's talk about some slick tire stuff because yeah, you know, I talked with Mo about this last week, and I've talked to other people about it. You know, that guys that used to race on slicks outlaw ten five, that those are some of the more dangerous racers, I think, because they understand how to get down a track and. St- not non-good conditions we'll put it that way well now i think you're starting to see series like the pdra and you're seeing it pop up in some other spots where you're seeing more slick tire stuff come back out because of the fact that radio prep and radio racing let's be honest here is not fan friendly but slick tire racing is and that's exactly uh to that point is the reason that my company um is involved in sponsoring both of those classes in the PDRA this year because I, I, you know, as a ambassador for my sport, um, I think it's sad that a radial event has its biggest crowd in the middle of the day on a Saturday and puts forward the absolute worst product as far as entertainment value for those people, you know, and, and I don't, you know, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way towards any promoter or any event or, or any racers or anything like that. It's just the fact. 
Yeah. That, you know, your Saturday afternoon is going to be your best crowd, and it's warm outside, and the majority of your cars either have to slow down or struggle to get down the racetrack just because of the conditions. And when you have a high car count event, you don't have the time to rub the racetrack in between. And even if you did have the time, the people didn't pay to watch Kubota and John Deere tractors going down the racetrack. No, no. And, and that in itself is the double-edged sword that is radio racing. It's exciting. It's fast. But, and there's, there's always that, that big but, it requires so much perfection these days because the cars have gotten so fast. So it's like this, this terrible vicious cycle, isn't it? It's like bebop jazz. You know, if you don't have a music theory degree, you can't understand it. It sounds like noise. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, that's if you, a... if you understand music, it's just incredibly fascinating. Um, but if you don't, it doesn't make any sense. And, and radial racing is that. We're playing to ourselves. We're not playing to the crowd anymore. And that is a dangerous, um, that's a dangerous slippery slope to get on. You know, I, the, I've said it, you know, all along. The reason that the no prep stuff is, is so popular, they don't put times on the board. But most of those cars get down the racetrack in some description, sideways, backwards, whatever. But they get from one end of the racetrack to the other, and they make a lot of noise. And most of the fans in the stands could not tell you the difference between a car that went 520 and a car that went 370. Nope. As long as it's noisy and it's going down the racetrack and it's side by side, um, it's exciting. No, you know, it's, it's more about the energy of the event than it is the actual ET that the cars are laying down. Yeah, I I used to think, I, I've said a thousand times, I used to think no prep was stupid until I went to a no prep race. And then the light bulb went on. I'm like, all right, this this makes sense. Back of the track racing. I That is something that I absolutely love watching. I will not participate in because I like my equipment. And again, it comes down to your level of sketchiness that you're cool with. It's not me, it's the person in the other lane because you get a lot of people that are you know right foot cowboys but you wa- the people love watching those events because they're crazy. It is unpredictable as hell. I wonder about it, um, like from an insurance standpoint, you know, if, how does that work? How do you insure a racetrack? And maybe somebody who hears a podcast can answer this and will, will tell me that I'm a dummy. Um, but how do you insure a racetrack to make cars go the wrong way? Uh it's one of those things that uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, I'm guessing. I'm I'm wondering about that. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> look, look. but it's certainly, you know, it, it begs the question, and I hope that, that it does not end up yeah. in calamity, but it could. it's certainly a possibility. That That's one of those deals where you don't call your insurance agent because they're going to go, you want to do what? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No. Yeah. The answer simple. No. But 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 here's the thing though. On on the flip side of that is that those cars cannot on, on a true unprepped surface. You cannot obtain terminal velocity. So <laughs> w- within reason. Let let's you know like I've watched you know I, I've seen guys they make quick runs, but it's not like as quick if they're in the front half of the track. But it's just it's exciting as hell. It really really is. Yeah, it's exciting, and that, you know that's the whole uh, that's the whole point of it, you know. And and uh, you know, the the fans, um, you know, World Cup is a perfect example of that. You know, not every class at World Cup is going out there and running five second quarter mile passes, but those all over the racetrack, and those guys that have that never lift mentality, and they're wall to wall knocking the cones out you know, never lifting and the fan involvement and the energy of the event. That's what makes it exciting. I mean, I do just the, you can never forget we're selling an entertainment product. We're competing for entertainment dollars. So if we want our sport to be successful, we got to put out a product that's entertaining. I have been at the world cup crewing on a car and I have seen a Toyota starlet literally on one wheel that we're racing against Dude is not lifting. The only thing touching is the left rear, like outer sidewall of the slick. That guy yep. did not lift. He grabbed the next gear because, in theory, it's just like a regular wheel stand. It's going to help bring the nose down. 
and the dude kept that car rubber side down and finished the run. I will never forget seeing that. Yeah, it's it's one of the most exciting events in the country. I mean, I you know I love going to that thing. I love watching and participating and being involved in it. Oh, it's one of my big my big bold goals for Project Red Dragon is I told Jason Miller, don't tweak the rules too hard for some of your slower classes because I just want to like have a car that is quick enough that I can even try to enter. Not even make the field just so I can say I was fast enough that I could go to the World Cup. And just to make one of those fields, that puts you in some pretty elite company, in my opinion. Well, I love the format. I love the no double enter. I love the minimum ET requirements. I'm, all the things that he does to ensure that he's putting on a good race for his fans. All that stuff that he's doing, it's he's, he's trying to make it the best possible event by ensuring that the product that goes down the racetrack um, for his fan base is is up to par. You know, people don't want to watch a bunch of buy runs. People don't want to watch a bunch of stuff that smokes the tires or blows up and doesn't go 10 feet and oils down the racetrack. And there's certainly plenty of that that goes on. But but can you imagine what it would be like if he didn't have all those rules in place? Oh, I've been there. I have been before they made the changes. I remember being there when they still had index and bracket cars, and it was just – it was painful. But props to Jason that he said, you know what – I think we got a problem here we need to address. And he's good at taking care of that. And again, it comes back to that phrase we said earlier. You're going to piss off some racers. He pissed people off, but guess what? He found a way to improve the event. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, he his responsibility is to to put on an event that, that uh, entertains his fans and satisfies the majority of his racer customer base. So, I mean, he's doing that. And if, you know... You got to pull some weeds to grow a garden, man. Yes, yeah. it is not fun, and it's not comfortable, and you can't make everybody happy. No, and it, it ties in well, you know, like we were kind of starting to talk about there with you know the the slick tire stuff, and you know, especially with what the PDRA is doing, and then Mylan, you know, they're firing back up, and they're going to have the Outlaw Ten Five class plus the radial stuff. But to me, it is so awesome to see so many. The, the, the slick tire guys really trying to make this stuff happen once again because it's it's good for the fans. It really, really is. Well, I love that we can race during the day. Um, I like that we can kind of go back to our roots a little bit. You know, when I first started um, building shocks for, for small tire drag racing, everybody pretty much just raced on small slicks, 28s and 29s. That's That was, you know, um, you, you might have radials, that you put on the car a couple of times a year at a specific event. Like if you knew Pooch was going to go there and spray glue, then you could take your radials because you could probably get down the racetrack with them. But everybody had a set of slicks that was like the go-to because that's what you had to race on most of the time. Yeah. This idea that you could build and field a car specifically to race on radials year-round at every event that you go to is really just something that's a phenomenon that's just happened in the last you know six or eight years of drag racing period it never existed before yeah no i i agree and i think that having that ability to you know run multiple events run on slicks and radials is very important because radials are are good for you know lower temperatures in the fall and in the spring again it's it's not people some people construe that as oh you're attacking radial racing no we're just speaking facts here it's proven facts and it's that's what i think that people need to really support some of these other sanctioning bodies that are doing stuff like this and support their local tracks when they're not going to these big races you need to get these cars out more well it's it's become it's become difficult, I'm sure. And I don't know. I'm not a racetrack owner. I'm not a track prepper. Um, but I can't imagine what it would, would have been like the last few years for these guys because um, it's become the expected norm uh, for everybody to be able to show up on 275s and go fast at every racetrack anywhere in the country at any time. Oh. And that's and that's sort of um, it's just an unrealistic expectation, you know. Even if your racetrack is 
uh, trying to prep for you, if they have a decent bracket program, you're going to piss off all the bracket racers when you put all that glue on the racetrack. See, well, we used we used to do radio racing here locally. We had the exact mindset, exact opposite mindset. We hoped that we showed up to a track that was garbage because we could get down a garbage track where the fast, some of the faster guys, they couldn't do it. And that's, that kind of makes things interesting there. And you see who can really tune and, and kind of how things work is that the, if the track conditions aren't ideal, unfortunately, there are some guys that just, they can't figure out how to get down it. Well, I, you know, as, as is the situation with the radial stuff now on the level that it's at, when you've got a car that's set up to go 368 and you have conditions that require you to slow the car down to 395 or something, there becomes such a disparity between the two ETs that, you know, with certain combinations, you find yourself needing to make a stator change and move a lot of weight and do a lot, you know, maybe even a ratio change in the transmission. Um, that, these are huge changes to make from round to round as it goes from daylight to dark. Yeah. And if you don't have data for racing in those conditions, you can really find yourself in trouble. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of, kind of what I think is going to be fun about the PDRA stuff because most of that stuff's going to be contested during the day. Yeah. So there's not going to be that disparity. They're not going to go out there and run, four seventies during the day and then run three nineties at night. It, it, it's what fascinates me about fast door slammer racing you know, with top sportsmen and, you know, even top dragster is that those guys are doing what they got to do no matter how bad the conditions are. They're like, I just got to make X amount of horsepower, get X amount of traction to hit said number. It, number might be lower, it might be higher, but this is what I got to do. Now, yeah, it's, Go ahead. I was going to say that something else that I was thinking of here that I find interesting that we can kind of get ready to round things out on here is drag and drive events. And I wanted to get your take on those because I've been to a couple now and I see some of the guys that are basically driving pro mods on the street do something very interesting at the track. They are legit swapping and some of the other faster cars too. They're legit swapping shocks between what they drive on the street and on the track have you had a lot of guys approach you about that we've had we've had this discussion with some guys and there are situations where um where that makes sense and then there's situations where it doesn't make sense um you know if you're running something that's got a real aggressive valving and you've come up with um some settings that work and you've got a really dialed in package especially like a pro mod like a big tire deal um where the car runs relatively soft on the compression side of the shock. It might make sense. And, and I know what some of the guys do, um, they'll swap and put the, put another set of shocks on with a more street friendly valving and spring package and put on like mud tires that are an equivalent diameter. So the ratio is not all screwed up. Yep. Um, then you've got tread, you've got some stability. If there's moisture on the road, um, and you've got a shock package that's drivable on the street. Yeah, that 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 that's why I was kind of wondering. It made sense because you're seeing some of. Uh, I know I saw actually a guy we were going to do a feature on his dart. Him and his crew were doing that where they were swapping tires, shocks, springs, the whole deal. And I've seen a couple of the guys that are driving the. Uh, you know, it was a full body, you know, full weight door car, which you know I was like, oh, that's you know. There's got to be a reason. But when I was seeing the guys that have like the legit pro mods doing it, I'm like, that makes sense because, you know, the shocks that make a pro mod go vroom, vroom, vroom on the track versus what's going to work on the street are probably a couple different animals. Yeah, they're, they're drastically different. That's that's interesting. I, I, we, I might have to pick your brain on a future story about that. I, I see some potential there. I think that would be interesting. Absolutely. Now, Mark, our time here is coming to the end, and I, you know, want to ask you – a fun question and based on what we've been talking about we're going to do a dirt track question because we both like dirt track racing you have to drive a dirt track vehicle but it can't be a dirt late model so any of the open wheel cars outlaw sprint cars all stars midgets silver crown cars whatever what uh, any any non-wing sprint car any non-wing sprint car yep okay 
Interesting, because yeah, the the wings and non-wing guys they fight like radial and slick guys, and it's always interesting to to hear the the which route that they want to go. That's right. No, I just I like the idea of being unencumbered by aerodynamics. I think aerodynamics have ruined a lot of forms of racing. Dirt late model racing is headed towards that. Formula One being one of them. Uh, certain genres of sports car racing. I mean, you know, when you make these things super aero dependent the slip angle becomes reduced and they're not as fun to watch and so you know what i love about non-wing sprint cars is they are you know they're sideways and on the gas all the time yeah and there's two that i really like to watch i like to watch the the usac sprint cars on really big tracks because they're just freaking balls to the wall fast hitting those corners super hard and then i love watching the midgets at eldora because they're going four wide, bumping and grinding like they're listening to a slow jam, just getting after it. It's awesome to awesome to watch. Yeah, it is very entertaining. Well, Mark, now that we've got all the fun stuff out of the way, I'll turn the floor over to you, and you can you know impersonate your best John Force and talk about where people can find again where, what you got going on, learn about your products, and who you need to thank in the whole deal. So uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, if you need, if you would like. Some, uh, some help with your suspension, your shock absorber package, look us up on the web at mincermotorsports.com or find us on Facebook um, or Instagram. Reach out to us. Uh, tell us about your hot rod and uh, give, us, uh, give us a chance to give you a hand with your, uh, your program. And I'm not a good salesman, so um, you know, I'm available if you need me, but I'm never going to come chasing you down. Do you still offer exotic animal babysitting services? I do not. Just those, those days are over. The, the, the days of cows and cows and racehorses and all kinds of stuff, but there are no more lions and tigers around here. Yeah, that that yeah, if you want a good laugh, uh, we, we I'll just let people ask you about that. You know, we'll see how many diligent listeners we have the next time you see Mark at the track. Ask him about babysitting big cats. Just just ask him about it. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Just just call, you know, maybe, maybe we need to start calling you Tiger King instead of the Shock Nerd, right? No, I'll pass. <laughs> Hard pass. Hard pass. Well, Mark, appreciate you coming on the show, man, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, it's great talking to you, Brian.